Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. So a very good morning to you. Uh, you're very welcome to uh, today's Signpost webinar. So as the country experiences uh, one of the most serious energy crises in decades, and this coupled with the threat posed by climate change, as a country, we need to accelerate our transition to a fossil-free economy, fuel-free economy. And for Ireland, the benefits are clear, energy and food security, the reduced risk of catastrophic impacts on climate change from our climate, and more, a more sustainable society. And one community that is taking on the challenge head-on is the West Kerry Dairy Farmers Sustainable Energy Community, whose aim is to build a resilient and energy-efficient farming community by exploiting renewable energy sources, reducing costs, and our, their carbon emissions. And I'm delighted to be joined by Ruth Buggy, who is Program Manager of with the Sustainable Energy uh, of Authority of Ireland, uh, looking after the Sustainable Energy Communities Program, and also Dini Galvin, who is a member of the West Kerry uh, SEC. And we're going to be discussing how uh, sustainable energy communities can uh, start to tackle uh, agricultural emissions and also uh, uh, renewable energy. And we're delighted also to be joined by Barry Kazan, who is an energy uh, specialist and rural development specialist with Chagisk. Ruth, maybe just if you could introduce your, uh, the, the program to us and uh, give us an overview and maybe the type of work that you're doing. You're working with communi communities across the country uh, through your various uh, representatives uh, in Ireland. Maybe you could just give us an overview of the program. Of course, that's no problem at all. So certainly we've been running this program since 2015. It came out of an EU research project and it was about really how we could empower communities to showcase future energy and climate targets. And it's grown into a network now of almost 700 communities across Ireland. So it's a it's a hugely rewarding program to be part of and to see the communities embrace the opportunities and the ambition that they demonstrate every day. Thanks, thanks Ruth. And Dini, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Yes. Good morning to everybody. Yes. Barry, you're 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 going to help us with the questions uh, a little later on. Uh, Barry, you have a, a lot of experience in, in this area. Um, so, I mean, Barry, maybe you could just give us a, a, a picture of, of where things are at in terms of uh, renewable energy at a farm level. I know that there is some frustration there amongst farmers that they're creating electricity on their farms of maybe not getting recognition for it. In terms of of uh, the, the the total emissions, yeah. Good morning, everyone. And uh, yeah, there's a major recognition now that we have to be looking at the area of, of renewable energy. There's also a recognition as well that the way we produce energy has to change. We have to decarbonize, uh, and the way we consume energy is going to have to change quite a bit. So I think we have a, a few very intensive agricultural sectors in in terms of energy use, and it mainly be the pig, the poultry, horticultural sector and of course the dairy sector. Beef and sheep wouldn't use that much, um, but still they have a potential to get involved in energy generation. So they could be using their land for, you know, it could be wind turbine projects, it could be solar PV projects, because renewables is going to need a lot of land, Mark. It's going to need <clears throat> a lot, a lot of, um, I suppose, supports and policy instruments to make it all happen. So there's nothing new about renewables either. You know, we've seen it all over the world. We've seen it great advancements right across Europe where, uh, you know, wind turbines, solar PV, there's been major advancement there in terms of renewable technologies and the adoption of them. But it, it does require policy. 
But now we have the added drive that uh, we have high energy prices, and that's really putting a major push uh, in terms of people looking at technologies such as solar photovoltaic, solar thermal, uh, looking at variable speed drives in the, in the milking parlor, changing their lighting systems to the likes of LED lighting. Um, and of course, there's supports there from the likes of SEAI at the moment for uh, biomass boilers, which is a support scheme for renewable heat. So, you know, you can buy in wood chip at probably around four and a half cent per kilowatt hour. Whereas if you're using kerosene, to take that example of a fossil fuel, that's costing you over 12 cents per kilowatt hour. So it's nearly a third of the price using the wood chip. And of course, you're getting the support there through the support mechanism, which is the support scheme for renewable heat. So, the, so I think we are going to see a major, a, a major shift to, to decarbonisation and farmers adopting these technologies. Yes, indeed. I mean, the, the, the energy prices have really focused people's minds. And I know, Ruth, you were saying off air that uh, the level of interest in your the, the schemes offered by SEI has really uh, rocketed, which is, is good a good thing to see, I suppose. Um, so, Ruth, Very maybe nice. if we could ask you to, to share your screen with us, uh, you're going to give us a presentation. And I know, Dinny, you have some slides to share with us as well afterwards. Ruth, if we hand over to you and uh, we will uh, pick up on any questions at the end then. Great. Many thanks, Mark. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak this morning. So I'm proposing to cover off on a high level overview of the Sustainable Energy Communities Programme, talk about how we support communities, the various roles communities play in the energy uh, transition. And then because of the level of interest and from recent events we've attended, we know solar is obviously the area of most interest. So I just want to put together a brief overview of the different ways solar can be supported. Um, and a lot has happened in the last couple of months. So just a bit of an update there as well. Um, so then just moving across onto the sustainable energy community, we have defined this as a community, as a group of people who work together to develop a sustainable energy system for the benefit of the community. And it's about being energy efficient first. So avoiding unnecessary energy use, then looking for renewable options where feasible, and then looking at smart energy solutions. So it can be as small as a street and as large as a county or even a region. Um, and it can be, communities can be based on either shared location or shared interest, uh, but it cannot just be a group of businesses coming together. So in the case of Dinny's case study that you're gonna hear this morning, Dinny looked at their own energy use within the, the homes of the farmers involved, their transport and any other energy that they had influence over as a group. So it's about more than just business energy use. We have business programs that can support that. This is trying to look at bringing as much people together and exerting as much influence where we have it about changing how energy is used locally. Um, so that's really where it comes from. We started out as um, to engage and enable the energy citizen under the energy white paper in 2015. There is a lot of emerging and current energy policy from Europe around how we develop citizen energy communities, what renewable energy communities mean and what their structures should be, and then how we activate energy citizens. So a lot of this is about empowerment, um, and we've been at this for quite a while, so hopefully we can, we can share some of those learnings today. So then having a look at how we support communities and what that structure looks like. So we talk about a learn, plan, do staged process. So initially, communities can join the network. It's a very low entry uh, requirement. It's just a group of people who want to come together. It's a peer learning network. It's just about sharing experiences and finding out from others. You're provided with a mentor at that stage who can guide you through whatever interests you have and what different supports you may want to avail of. And um, so there's it's about 700 communities in that network. Now, we have a target to reach 1,500 
SECs by 2030. So it's quite an ambitious plan, but we're, we're very happy with the level of growth that we're seeing at the moment. The next stage communities can choose to step into is to participate in developing an energy master plan. So we've about 200 communities in this stage that have either done an energy master plan or are uh, in the process of developing one. And this is about identifying what the baseline energy use is within their own community and identifying what project opportunities there might be. So this is about seeing where the effort is best spent, see what opportunities exist. Every community has particular challenges, but they also have particular uh, opportunities and this helps identify it. Um, we provide 100% of the support to do the energy master plan. Then the next stage from that energy master plan is saying, well, now that we can see what we can do, how do we do it? So we have a significant grant there um, called the Community Energy Grant. This year, it's about 38 million euro. So it will leverage about 100 million euro worth of works um, as it happens. And it's trying to bring together the not-for-profit aspect of a community, some households in a community and commercial and businesses within a community into a single project. It works well in some areas. It works a little bit less well in others. There's still a co-funding challenge on that due stage for a lot of the not-for-profit communities that makes it quite difficult. So we also have um, the Better Energy Home Scheme, Warmer Homes and One-Stop Shops that householders within the community can be referred into. And then we have the Community Renewable Electricity Support Scheme that can also be something the communities want to participate in. So there's a lot there, but again, it's very much at the speed the community wishes to proceed at. It's not a, a legal definition when you're joining the network. It is just an expression of interest to find out more. It's a newsletter. It's a couple of online meetings. It's a mentor. And then as you want to proceed, the support is there to do that. So across those programmes of the due stages, the information we have really is about setting it out as the sustainable energy communities is kind of the broad framework from which communities start. When they get into that community energy grant, there's a panel of project coordinators to deliver those larger projects. On renewable energy communities, over the last number of years, there's been a lot of changes about embedding communities into how renewable electricity is generated. And that program now has a specific auction category just for community-led projects. Uh, we have a panel of trusted advisors the ability to support feasibility studies and early stage grant support of about 80% of the costs for those pre-construction costs of a project. So that's really for um, projects that are between 500 kilowatts and 5 megawatts. I think from the conversations we've had and from the, today's event, it'd be great to hear if the long history of co-ops within the agricultural sector could lead to some successful projects into that category. Um, and then Within all of the renewable electricity projects, both the commercial and the community-led ones, there is a requirement for a community benefit fund to be established. And that equates to two euro for every megawatt hour of electricity that is generated by the project. And the intent there is, is that this fund is available for the community to undertake various projects of interest that align with sustainable development goals and also for wind projects to pay a near neighbor payment for, for homes that are close to those. But between onshore and offshore projects, it's going to amount to funds of about one and a half to two billion euro over the next 30 years. So it's a very significant amount of money that communities will have access to to realise their ambitions at a community level and hopefully their climate ambitions. The picture here is a group water scheme and they installed solar PV on the water treatment plant and they reduced their energy costs by 70%. Um, so they had 600 connections on their group water scheme and they had a significant sinking fund that helped co-finance that. They got some funding from the Better Energy Communities grant to install it and are now 
have applied to the grid for an assessment to connect a large scale renewable electricity project from that. So it's a really good example of how a cooperative and existing structure could be leveraged to build a project of enduring benefit for a wide group of people. So how communities operate in the space and, and the role is very, very depending on their interests and the nature of the time they have and the skills that they have. So the real skill for communities is how they engage the wider community in this conversation. So we talk about having the opportunity to discuss all energy interests and I suppose have the conversation before there's a project on the doorstep that people either want or don't want. They can identify a committee to lead actions to realize those climate ambitions. They typically host events and participate or can deliver energy training. They work to develop the energy master plan. They recruit homes and businesses for the, the audits. They can communicate the results back of the energy master plan and develop the due stage of options. So Dini has the story of his, his due actions and it really is a, is a great story to, to hear. And it's, it's a real pleasure to have met him a number of years ago and was lucky enough to sit next to him at a lunch. And hopefully some of what we chatted about has, has now been realized. So when we talk about then moving on to businesses and energy and solar, um, I just want to do a quick overview of what's there for businesses in this space. So SMEs can get a voucher of 2000 euro to get an energy audit. So you have to spend about 10,000 euro per energy uh, per year, which unfortunately for most people really won't be a difficult thing with the, the rise in, in uh, energy prices. So it does require a CRO number, um, but there's a link there and you're all going to get the presentation. So to go in there, there's also capital grants, Barry referenced the support scheme for renewable heat, community energy grant that I've spoken about, microgen, which I will talk about, and then the accelerated capital allowance and the opportunity to claim back the, the costs in one year instead of eight years for products that are bought from that list. We have 24 training modules about energy for businesses, and there's a lot in there that's really useful. There are a combination of short videos um, and they typically take between a half an hour and two hours and you can just dip in and out. It's totally free, but it's there. It can help you understand your energy bill, your choices, how to change suppliers, how to make energy savings within within the business. We also offer expert advice. So we provide energy management training and then there's an optional follow up call with an energy advisor and you can register for the workshops there. We also have a host of different events and networking opportunities as well. So there's a lot of supports there for businesses that might be of help, particularly at this very challenging time. So in terms of solar PV resources, um, the conditional planning exemptions for solar PV, I believe, were were um, issued yesterday to be signed by uh, into law next week. So hopefully that will get the go ahead. So that exempts a lot of the smaller scale solar uh, projects from having to get planning permission. So you're already exempt up to 12 square meters for domestic, but anything over that, uh, even if it was small scale needed planning. Um, so that, that will go a long way to making it a lot easier to participate. We have a lot of online guides and tools, and I've just put a few examples up there. And from a government perspective, the small scale generation consultation. So this is for projects between 50 kilowatts and 500 kilowatts is currently open. It's open until the 13th of October. It was extended by two weeks earlier this week. So if you've got feedback and you want to input into that, that's the that's the larger scale than the microgen, and it's not as big as commercial generation, but it could be an area where a group of farmers might see an opportunity to develop projects at that scale and to make sure that your voices are heard. Um, what I'd say on consultation is some of the times they can be quite difficult to access um, or to even understand all that's being said, but you can respond to just sections that are relevant to yourself. You don't have to do a response to the whole document. Um, we've guides there for community 
projects. We have a toolkit around solar PV that shows likely paybacks, understanding the process. There's a really good solar guide uh, for businesses and it shows what the likely return is, the differences in orientation and really useful to have a scan through that before you consider it. Just understanding your own electricity use demand profile and seeing if the technology is the right fit for yourself. Um, the more you can use yourself, the more effective and efficient the solution is and far more cost effective as well. If you're interested in your own home, there is a payback solar, um, a payback calculator for domestic solar PV. But I think with the current challenges, the, the, the rates on that are changing on nearly a daily basis. Then we are looking at the non-domestic microgen grant, which was launched in the last week. So this effectively provides the same grant for non-domestic microgen as was available for, for homes up until that. So you can obviously still get the homes one. So the maximum is 2,400 euro for the installation of solar PV on businesses, farms, schools, community centers, or other non-profit organizations. If you're installing a panel that has a peak production in a lab as tested of one kilowatt, the uh, grant is 900 euro, and then it maxes out at four kilowatt peak at 2,400 euro. You can still install up to six kilowatts under this scheme, but the grant is capped at 2,400 euro. So then looking at what also, what is there. So there's, in addition to the grant, there's also what's called a clean export guarantee. So this is where your supplier will pay you for that export. And um, so a, a sample I took um, about a month ago, electricity were offering 14 cent for the electricity you were spilling back to the grid. Energy were offering 18 cent and flow gas were offering 20 cent. And there's a tax exemption for this of up to 200 euro. For installs bigger than six kilowatts, so this is six kilowatts to 50 kilowatts, there is what's called a clean export premium feed-in tariff, and it's set at 13.5 cents per kilowatt hour. It is capped at 80% uh, of the usage, but it will reduce from 2024 by a cent every year. So the sooner you get in, the more likely you are to get a return fast. But at the same time, with the rise and incre increase in, in electricity prices, the payback is very quick. So... This is something I put together to try and understand all the different types of electricity generation that's been spoken about and all the different programs because I couldn't find anywhere that I could see them all in one space. So this is trying to say this is the this is what was there. This is the microgen domestic and non-domestic. It's for up to six kilowatts in size. There's a capital grant and then you get your guarantee on the market rate from your supplier um, and each supplier sets their own and you can only get paid by the supplier who supplies you. You can't have one supplier that gives you electricity and you can't sell it to a different one. Um, then the microgen too. So this is the, the six kilowatts to 50 kilowatts. So at the moment there is no capital grant and there isn't one planned and that has a 13 and a half cent kilowatt premium per kilowatt hour. And again, that's the one that's gonna drop one cent uh, per year after next year, after 2024. Small scale generation then is 50 kilowatts to 500 kilowatts. And that's out for consultation. So how will that model work? So it's not just a case of the agricultural sector finding it difficult to access the grid to generate. It hasn't been possible for pretty much anyone to sell into the grid. So this is being developed. And that's the one that if you have a, an opinion on to consider providing a response. Then we talk about community projects, so community res. So they're typically between 500 kilowatts and five megawatts, and they have their own auction category. Um, and then finally, there's the large scale res. So that's the, the large developers, large solar and wind at the moment, but it will open up to other technologies next year. Um, and that's what's going to deliver the bulk of our targets of 80% renewables 
by 2030, but we need all of this in the system as well. Um, so that was just a way of trying to show it. It might make sense, it might not. Um, but I know solar was certainly the area of most interest in recent events we've participated in. So happy to take any questions, but I think I think you'll enjoy Dinny's story and I'll revert back to Mark. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much, Ruth. I mean, that's an excellent graphic. It really pulls it all together. Um, I, I know from talking to people, there's a feeling out there from some people anyway, that the microgen to that second grouping that's, that there should be some sort of supports there to, to try and pump prime that, uh, given that the you know there's huge shed space available across the country. I think that is, if I'm right, that's the category that uh, is targeted at to kind of this isn't a six to fifty kilowatts. Six to fifty, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think six kilowatts works out to be about thirty square meters. Okay, so yes. you're you're talking very significant size if you're at the fifty kilowatt scale. Very good, very good. Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, Look, it's a it's an ever changing uh, uh, market with uh, the way prices are changing every, every day. Um, so so look, it's it's not something that's definitely. Um, I think people are really looking seriously at at those different um, those different uh, grants that are available. So Denny, if if you're available to join us there, I know that you you're having some. Yes, sorry about that. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. So uh, yeah. if, you, if you want to uh, proceed through your, your slides there, uh, Dini, we can uh, pick up on some questions then afterwards. Yes, indeed. OK, so the the, the Dingle Peninsula extends about 48 uh, kilometres out into the sea. And uh, it's pretty unique um, because it's surrounded by the sea and, and that affects all our food down here. Um, so we... Um, my initial, uh, uh, if you can move on to the to um, the next slide, uh, Yvonne, please. Um, my initial um, um, work uh, started on the Dingle ESB project. Uh, I was one of five ambassadors chosen uh, to uh, use um, technology uh, supplied by the ESB for our homes and and EV vehicles and and so on. Um, as part when that was coming to, to you know was coming to the end, I, I um, there was a community energy mentor course um, organised here through the Dingle Hub, and um, I couldn't you know I had a, a big interest in electricity and renewable energy, so wild horses wouldn't keep me away, and I was one of of twelve uh, participants. They're there on the right hand side and um, one of 12 participants that took part in this community energy mentor course. Uh, there was four farmers on it. I was the only dairy farmer. And on one particular day, we had a professor and um, he, you know, his, his idea to sort out all the, the, the climate problems and the greenhouse gases was um, to get rid of all the dairy cows. And my God, that didn't go down well with me. Um, I, I'm 52. I stopped the farming when I was 16. Um, my dad passed away. And um, a lot of work put into a very small farm here in West Kelly. And from bringing it, bringing, bringing it up to, to keep 60 dairy cows um, right now. Um, so... I was absolutely very hurt and, and, you know, the media and the papers and so on at the time uh, that was back just before the pandemic came in were, you know, 
it was all negative towards the, the dairy farmers. We, we're, we were the problem and, and the beef farmers, we were the problem. We were causing all this uh, greenhouse gas and I was, you know, I was saying, no, we're not, but there's so much we can do. So um, the following day, we, we, had a, we had a few great speakers at this energy mentor course. We had Ruth Buggy, who spoke already, and uh, we had um, a Lawrence O'Reilly from the SEAI, and Lawrence was explaining to us how sustainable energy communities could be set up. And um, I threw the question at Lawrence. I said, look, would it be possible to set up uh, a dairy farmer's uh, sustainable energy community? And he kind of looked at me as if I had two heads, but he said, yeah, probably, yeah. So off I went that evening. I'm on the advisory board with Kerry Agri. I spoke to a couple of the lads, a couple of my colleagues on that, the seven of us in the peninsula. And, um, yeah, they said, look, you know, this is this is something we have to do. So off I went. We set up uh, a steering committee, uh, nine great people, uh, representation here from the Dingle Hub, the ESP, uh, our secretary, Katrina Fallon, who we're indebted to, and um, uh, so many others. Uh, we had three other dairy farmers, including myself, and um, our SEAI mentors as well. And um, we set about um, um, our um, sustainable energy community and uh, started off from there. Um, the next slide, uh, please. Um, yeah. So 130 members initially, but look, you know, some, some guys had gone out of milking, and so we're roughly at about 110. Um, I'm chair of the West Kerry Dairy Farmers SEC, and um, I'm agricultural liaison officer with the Dingle Hub here with the last four months as well. Um, we had two um, community energy mentors. Uh, we had a Shemus O'Hara initially, and um, we have uh, Seamus has moved on, and uh, we have uh, Annette O'Connor. Uh, like I say, Dingle Hub representative, representative uh, Valish, the manager here. We had a lady called Claire McElligot from the ESB, and um, we um, we decided to, we, we applied then to the SCAI, and we received uh, great funding to uh, do an EMP on our energy usage and energy conservation within the dairy sector. I've, I felt that we, we energy, electricity and emissions are very, very closely related. And I was of the view that by reducing our, our energy consumption, we could really um, tackle our emissions side of things as well. Um, so we received our funding and we selected five farms to be monitored uh, by our consultant who were DC6 Technologies from uh, Cork, uh, a local tinkle man here, uh, Barry Bambury works, works with the company, so that was a plus as well. So um, five farms were chosen and we there was um, uh, a Watrix device installed. You can see it there on, on the um, one of the one of the slides, 
there was a Watchtrix device installed, and, and what that does is it monitors absolutely every bit of electricity that's leaving the switchboard, the fuse board, the ECB board uh, in the plant room on the farm. So with that, um, the, the four of us as, as farmers decided we would pay for our own device and um, just to make the project more relevant. So there was nine farms in total were having their um, electricity uh, usage being monitored. So what that Watrix device is, it's clamped onto all the, uh, the um, outlets from the, from the ECB board. And I have an app on my phone. I can actually go in and see exactly what it's costing me to milk the cows, cool the milk, heat the water, um, the water pump on the farm as well. And it's great information that's linked back to my electricity supplier. So I can see exactly in euros and cent what everything is costing me on the farm. And that in itself was very educational, absolutely. You would really look at what you do um, and and see can you reduce things here and there. Um, so our energy master plan um, kept going through the COVID. Uh, it wasn't easy uh, and the pandemic uh, just because we couldn't get out to some of the farms. But at least all the monitoring equipment was in and we were getting the information back. So our EMP is now completed. Um, DC6 have done a great job. We haven't submitted it yet to the SEAI. We've just got to tidy up a few um, bits and pieces. Um, great learnings came out of it. Um, I suppose one big thing was, you know, um, we were using almost, uh, of 100 dairy farmers surveyed, we were using almost uh, a million euros worth of agri-diesel in 12 months. Now, that was two years ago. So you can imagine the price of fuel right now. It's, it's almost double. Um, other things were uh, a pile of the farming community didn't have nitrate electricity. And, and to me, I was, I was amazed with that because the nitrate is usually half or whatever you're paying by day. Um, I suppose the top findings, if you can move on another slide for me, Yvonne. Um, that's the Watchtrix device there, and um, it's clamped on, and we have the app, the apps on the phone. You can move on again for me, Yvonne, please. Um, so really, um, what came back um, with all the monitoring was that heat recovery would have, you know, I have a heat recovery unit in my milking parlor which, uh, since 2013. Um, we had a heat pump in the house and I was in the milking uh, one day and I, I, I was saying it's a fright to see all the heat coming off of this compressor that was making the ice for the milk tank and it was just going out the door into the atmosphere. Um, that has saved me thousands of euro in water heating over the years to the point that I'm a 60 dairy cow farmer. Um, I have 500 litres of water every morning at 57 degrees. That's just from taking the heat from the compressor for cooling the milk. Um, the direct expansion, I have a, an ice bank tank, direct expansion tanks would be a bit more economical, but the compressor still has to come on to make the gas. So every time a compressor comes on, you pass the gas with water and, and then turn it heats the water. 
So the heat recovery kind of came out as one of the big things. And there's only out of 110 dairy farmers, there's only about four of them on, on the farms here. So that's, that's one we're going to focus in on. Um, the second thing was the PV panels, and there wasn't much between them really, but we feel, you know, uh, we have the roof space on the farms, and we could create a lot of our own electricity. Um, okay, you'd say, what will you do with electricity during the day when you're not milking the cows, but you could put that into heating water, you could store it in batteries, or you could put it into ice. And if you put it into ice, you could you could run that ice water through the, the plate cooler and it would be an extra help in a reduction for cooling the milk uh, via electricity. LED lighting, variable speed vacuum pumps and and um, motors, very important as well, uh, would be a big, uh, big thing going forward. Um, we did a little bit on the micro hydro. I suppose we're unique here. We have the mountains. There's a pile of water flowing off the mountains. Um, that may be suitable to harness between a group of, of, of farmers. Um, between them, they could they could definitely get something going. And compared to a wind turbine or something, it's not they're not obtrusive. You 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 capture the water. You put it through a turbine and you have electricity in the other end. Um, um, some of the, one of the things as well, one of the surveys we did was 25% of 50, 50 surveys that were done, the uh, dwelling house was tied on to the milking. When I say tied on to the milking, the power was leaving the dwelling house going back out uh, to, to the milking parlor. So like, that's something we felt that you know could be could be done. Um, why couldn't you put enough of PV on the, the the milking parlor outside and send some of that um, electricity back into the home? Uh, so there's an option there as well. And I think Ruth touched on planning um, the amount of PV you could put up. I think that has changed. I, I read a little bit about it last night. Uh, that has changed. So that's that's a good incentive as well. Um, we've also done a, a feasibility study uh, on an anaerobic digester here on the peninsula and um, our food festival is kicking off uh, this evening and tomorrow and Sunday we have a Ford New Holland uh, biometan tractor coming. You may have seen it at the ploughing and uh, at other events around the country. Um, we feel that there's a, a great possibility for an anaerobic digester for the peninsula here. Uh, and we could, uh, the newer uh, New Holland tractors can be, can be converted from diesel to biogas. And when we're looking at a, almost 2 million euros worth of, of agri-diesel, and that was for 100 farmers, and there was no silage contractor involved in, in that, um, that uh, survey. I mean, we feel we we have the gas. Uh, it would make more sense to me as as a farmer, uh, where I can see that we're going to have to have a month extra storage for slurry and dairy washings, and for all animals going forward, it would make more sense to me to uh, for the farming community to 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 get involved in an anaerobic digester and invest in it and take our excess slowly into that 
because you can't keep digging holes in the ground for slurry and and um, number one, it costs too much. And with, with um, the anaerobic digester, we'd have our digestate and, and that's a fertilizer. It would also cater for uh, um, offal from a small abattoir here, which would be very important to us. Uh, farm to fork is definitely the way we should be we should be thinking. So um, our next steps, our next steps, we um, we held a meeting with the farmers. We had a good attendance there a few weeks back. We had Barry Cassins and Ruth attended. Uh, at Geraldine Maloney from the ESB attended as well. And we've secured funding uh, from Kerry Agri and the SCAI to do on-farm audits. And the on-farm audit, there's 90 guys interested in PV. And what the on-farm audit will do is it'll be a 10-hour audit and it will look at absolutely everything on the farm. We're all dairy farmers, but one farmer might find that heat recovery may be more beneficial to him than PV. Uh, lighting, variable speed vacuum pumps and mortars. Also, they will survey the roofs of the buildings because you don't put PV panels up on a bad roof. They're not going to stay there. We're on the Wild Atlantic Way here and we have a lot of salt coming in as well. So the brackets for mounting those PV panels, the roofs, everything would have to be in good nick, you know, to uh, to deploy them. So, and we, we, we're sort of in a few little different things as well. Uh, a few questions for the farmers, um, you know, as part of, uh, of that audit as well. When that's completed, we have, we have buying power. We have a group. I think if anything, you know, with all the great findings, but we've put the dairy farmers together as a group. I had worked as a, an AI technician with 12 years and for Jovia Genetics and I have been closely involved with the farming community. They trust me, but like when we, we have buying power, when we have our audits together, we can go to any PV company in the country and we can request how many kilowatt of PV We'll know exactly because we've done our audits and um, we'll be able to go out there and tender that out and and get a couple of quotes. The cheapest price isn't always the best. That definitely um, makes sense as well. As I say, we're here, we're playing with extreme winds and quite a lot of salt. Um, it erodes the machinery unbelievably, the sheds, um, so that's something we would be looking into. Um, definitely about, uh, one minute left for, for uh, the presentation. I uh, just want to leave time for questions. Okay. The Dingle Hub has been very central to everything we've done. They reached out to the farming community and um, they've been absolutely great to work with. Um, so, yeah, that's me. I think I've okay. got everything in there. <laughs> Okay, uh, thanks very much, Denny. Uh, really useful to have the, the practical experience. And um, I, I have to say, really ins inspired by the, the spirit of, of, of cooperation down there uh, in the, around the Dinkle uh, community and, and just the, the, the enterprising nature of all of the, the farmers involved. I had the pleasure of uh, sharing a session at the ploughing last week uh, with Katrina Fallon and uh, the group who are looking at the, the climate reducing the climate uh, emissions from from agriculture there so really 
excellent work going on there. So and and of course, uh, the Dingle Hub being the 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 fulcrum of of a lot of that that work. So it is uh, it's a, a really an inspiration for a lot of communities uh, and and uh, regions across the country. Um, we have lots of lots and lots of questions coming through, um, uh, Barry, and and obviously people are thinking about this. Uh, topic it's 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 uh very very um relevant to everybody uh but just just a question from from myself um i i actually did choose to, to go down the solar option here on my my own uh place here and uh have to say very positive experience um but I, i'm looking out the window here and looking at the wind that's blowing and just wondering is is there an opportunity there for more micro generation through wind or is that something that's seen as 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 maybe not as economical um maybe Ruth, if you you had any comment on that sure so we did a micro generation trial um a number of years ago to assess the different types of micro generation potential that there was um and wind has limited application that's quite expensive and it's very intermittent in nature so it creates a certain number of challenges and it's it's possible. You can certainly do it. There's planning exemptions in certain areas as well as there is for solar. From a from a cost benefit analysis, solar certainly seems to come back as the most cost effective option and the least obtrusive. Um, and it has so few moving parts. It doesn't yes. require maintenance, so it's quite reliable in that regard. So, yeah. I think it's a. It's not that it's a no to wind. It's that there's limited locations and people who might be willing to take on the responsibility of quite a significant asset and uh, to maintain it as well. Barry, we, we should get to the, the questions coming in from the audience. A lot of uh, excellent questions coming through there. Yeah, look, it was two great presentations there, Mark, and uh, great to get that kind of feedback as well in terms of the level of uptake in it in, in West Curry. That actually was the first SEC, agricultural SEC in the country. So Ruth mentioned that there's 700 SECs right across the country at the moment, which is fantastic. And that was the first agricultural one. I believe there's a poultry one up in Cavanagh and there as well in, in that region. So it's great to see them getting going and hopefully we'll see more of them in the agri sector as well. Just Ruth, I'd say that we've seen a lot of investment, you know, in renewable energy generation right across Europe. But policymakers and planners are very frequently met with a lot of resistance from communities who are proposed to maybe infrastructure or development. Do you think that these SEC, this SEC approach is going to get over get us over those kind of hurdles? Thankfully, there's actually research in this space. UCC have been doing a, a research project called CoWind, and they've actually identified that the presence of an SEC in a location where a project wants to go ahead um, leads, meets the least amount of resistance. So it's a very positive part of that conversation. Um, so I think it, it one of the early ambitions was very much to depolarize kind of people's view um, on what projects are there and to lay out the choices. And I think where an SEC has been formed, I think the value proposition of different projects is much clearer. People understand what the opportunities are, what the choices are. So when a project presents itself, they're, I suppose, better equipped to possibly negotiate for what they want from the project as well. And to understand, well, we can ask for different setback distances. We can ask for this. You know, we can engage earlier with the developer. We're a group of voices together that will be heard rather than individuals left alone uh, being afraid of the project. So certainly I think it does it does help. You mentioned the rules as well that micro generation is from six to uh, to six to fifty kilowatts, and then between fifty kilowatts and five hundred kilowatts, there's no scheme really in place there. I'm looking at potentially a small scale generation scheme. Do you think that at the moment the communities is coming in up to five megawatts? So between uh, you know from five hundred kilowatts up to five megawatts, to support communities to the res type scheme. 
it can be a very complicated process for communities to go through. Do you think there will be there might be something for them in the small scale generation? I think so. The I suppose the intent behind small scale generation is to give a, a, a fairly reliable um, income indicator of what would be possible from a project at small scale. So in the current renewable electricity support scheme in the res, it's an auction. So you have to bid your price for the future electricity sale. So if things change and you're like very much previous auctions were based on different delivery prices of equipment and material, you don't have an opportunity to change them. The potential of a guaranteed price for your electricity is much more attractive and much easier to go to the bank to uh, to get investment. So it's a much more reliable model for communities to be able to leverage a project on. So certainly I think there's there's a lot more opportunity in that small scale space. Um, scale space. Um, yeah, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, did you, did you want to? Yeah, no, uh, just agree with Ruth. Um, I suppose, you know, just Farmers' point of view, um, look, um, energy costs have gone through the roof. Very, very low here to be in the position we're in that we're, you know, we're going out now to, we've completed the EMP and we're going out to do the audits. But um, electricity is going to cost the farming, uh, especially all farming, especially the dairy sector, a lot of money over the next period of time. And if we apply these PV panels on our roofs, um, yes, it's nice to get something for something that would be going back out to the grid, but like financially, uh, the, the savings made on farm for heating, on dairy farms for heating water um, and and um, cooling milk and running our scrapers, I mean, the demand is fierce. Uh, so, like, if we, if we can use 80% of that, uh, which we will, and to me, that's that, that's very very important, and um, we can utilise it. Question, there, Denny. Well, you've got the um, you've got the energy master plan in place now, so there's recommendations got the for things that you can do. What will the level of uptake be? What? Are people prepared to invest in variable speed drives or LED lighting? Or the, 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 the recommendations that came from the energy master plan. Yeah, the recommendations for over the MPV came out on the top. Uh, but personally, I would say, you know, look, look um, we're all wanting the I I was to um, making that would be on by as just so much. You know that that we're farmers. Yes, we, we take animals into uh, but with electricians like um definitely the uh, uh, community and we're pushing the better because um we we. Okay, I, I, Denny, I, I think your your signal unfortunately is is breaking up uh, quite a lot I there. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't too sure was that on my side, Mark. Yeah, no, no, it it, it is uh, the signal, Denny, for some reason is is not coming through there. Unless now it's possible to to prioritize whether you have one or two, you have a couple of devices uh, linked through there. Um, but maybe just uh, in in the meantime, Ruth. Um, 
maybe if you could just is there advice that you could offer to people who are interested in establishing an sec in their area uh how should they go about uh setting that up or, or even finding out more about it sure it's, it's it's real easy um in the first really? instance we have a map on our website so i'd ask you to have a look and see if there might already be an sec in your area and really coming out of this is to encourage people to participate in an existing sec and it's a good way again to break down those categories of it's not just farmers on one thing and not. everyone else in the community and another farmers are an integral part of their community as dinny has demonstrated so see if you can join an existing sec to set one up, it's a very simple application form on our website. Once you do that, we'll send a mentor to give you a phone call and they'll talk you through the next stages of it. So it's literally five minutes. It, that's all it takes to, to join the network. And I said, it places no obligation on you to do anything, but it is an expression of an intention to participate. Um, and we'll guide you through the rest. And you can opt out at any stage if it turns out it's not for you, um, but we really hope it is. And we've had really good success with people who've joined so far. We might try and go, go through some of these questions here, uh, Ruth sure. and Denny there. If, Denny, you're, you're, you're getting feedback on your line there. I don't know if you have a second device on or not, but uh, there's a lot of feedback coming back when you're unmuted. But uh, there's a question there, Ruth. I have a turbine and produce excess energy, but I'm not allowed to sell to my neighbours. Is that going to change? Um, and there's a kind of a comment there, decrease in transmission distance would be more efficient, wouldn't it? It certainly is. And a large part of the challenge of community generation, particularly in rural areas, is the the, the, ca the grid capacity to take export. Um, so it makes a lot more sense to try and redistribute that electricity locally. My understanding is that ESB networks are looking at what's called private wire and peer to peer, which is the opportunity to be able to sell locally so that you can, I suppose, sell electricity to somebody nearby. Um, and also the, you're not at the moment allowed supply electricity to anybody privately who's connected to the, the grid to protect the grid's integrity. So there are they are looking at different options and there are good models across Europe for that. It was hoped that a peer-to-peer -peer electricity sharing uh, model would be included in the in the Dingle project, but it, it didn't get the go ahead in the final stages, unfortunately. Okay, another question there, just you might explain what RES is. We made the, the comment about RES, R-E-S-S. -S. You might explain that. Right? Yeah, so RES stands for the Renewable Electricity Support Scheme. So it is the government's process in which large-scale generators can bid to sell electricity into the grid. So it's for projects from half a megawatt to whatever they want it to be. So it's, it's typically your very large scale projects. And in it, there's the commercial category for the very large developers uh, and smaller developers. And then there's the category for communities if they wish to participate and sell into the grid. So it's it's what powers the grid from a renewable electricity point of view. And then it's sold on to retailers to sell it to customers. Yeah, so we're seeing all these bigger projects, the likes of the uh, hundreds of acres covered in solar PV, the likes of the big wind tur turbine projects, they're all covered by the, by the res support. Exactly. A uh, question there about solar, solar for business. Do non-company farms qualify for such grants? Absolutely. So the, the microgen doesn't require um, any sort of, it's, it's just you have a connection to the electricity system. So it's, it's not specific about what type of business you are. Um, it's your connection and your technical suitability for, the, for it. As far as I'm aware, there's no limit. Yeah. Is microgen two payments, the 13 and a half cent, which of course is the clean export premium per kilowatt, on top of the uh, what what the CEG or the TNS work guaranteed. So that's the question. You, you can't get the two, sure you can't lose? No, you can't. You're, you're in whichever category the size of your project is. So up to six is the first one and over six is the second one. You can't bundle them together. Yeah. Um, should we cover farm buildings and solar panels before using the land? 
there's definitely depending on the land and depending on the building so it's an assessment I think each farmer needs to, to take themselves it's access to your connection point so where your power cables coming in the cost of connecting back um, is the, the roof of your farm buildings suitable for taking the weight of solar are they orientated yeah. correctly to make the most of it and um, certainly it doesn't make sense to use land that could be used for other purposes for solar unless you don't have another choice so it's it's basically an assessment for each landowner to undertake themselves there's a, there's a yeah. quite a, you know a big question there Ruth isn't there about land use and uh, I know I, I saw a post by a farmer uh, on, on social media there a number of months ago and he, he was in a highly productive tillage field um, harvesting this uh, crop and uh, he said that uh, in a few months time this this field is going to be covered in solar panels and uh, I suppose he was asking the question you know how how does this uh, work with our policy to to try and uh, be more uh, self-sufficient as a country in terms of grain production. Um, so, I mean, I thought it was a valid uh, question that he was asking. It absolutely is. And it it's a consideration. And do we create financial instruments that that make something more attractive than possibly they should be? And are the long term needs of the country being considered? And what's the balance of that? So it is certainly very much a complicated question and a complicated answer. And we have to be very careful that we don't create unintended consequences from policy directives to the drive to do renewables. There are certainly better locations they could be put in. Um, and is there a better way to do that? Unfortunately, for large scale projects, the location of the grid is the biggest determining factor uh, rather than necessarily the, the suitability of the land. Well, Denny, do you have a, a view on that? that? Uh, Denny, are you, uh, can you unmute there? Just a question around that land use. Yeah. Around that land use and, and solar. Yeah. Um, so I suppose um, definitely under the audit roofs, uh, the quality of the orientation is very, very important. Also, be part of the audit. I think back about three years where I had a visit from the Department of Ag, and I have a bit of peatland that was improved, and uh, there was two lads that were that were sounded. They stood at the end of, of the farmyard and they were looking at the at peatland that was trained and improved and, and I did my green course back in the 90s uh, my green cert and um, I was I was granted to, to turn this from peatland into, into a grazing area and uh, these two lads told me you know you have to keep five metres from all the water for that and the there was you just couldn't fill the amount of drains that's on this um, this ten acre uh, part of my farm, and um, our local GAA GAA jersey has green and yellow stripes. And I said to the lads, "Look, it looked like the local GAA jersey. If I have to do that, and I feel that there is an option for that type of ground." For the simple reason that it takes a lot to keep busy, and there's no that. And if we cover some of that land with PV panels, we can also leave the underneath go back to the biodiversity, and also help uh, tackle our. Um, 
of some of these large solar farms up in up the country where the best of land is 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 being covered and like that you know that that long I think you shouldn't cover good farmland but if you have areas like I have uh, areas of small areas of peatland you'd be you'd be doing a double you'd, you'd have a double win because you'd be You'd be creating electricity, and you would be in the underneath go back to uh, biodiversity, and I think there's that's definitely an option there. Okay, thanks, thanks, uh, uh, Dana. Really useful uh, comment. We we have about time for one last question, Barry. Yeah, there's a question there. If you get a trans grant, can you sell to the grid? We have an NC7, so that's the the the, the ESB networks application process. I suppose I I can answer that one. That uh, you can't get. Tans grant and get a, um, a, a teen export premium or a teen export guarantee on top of that. So that would be considered double funding. Um, there's, well, I just time for one more maybe uh, question there. You said you, you can use 80% of the power generated. How much of the total power requirement is produced by solar? That, uh, is, it, is that for Dinny? Um, I, I think, Barry, the, this, the line is gone. The line, yeah. I At think this stage. a reasonable assessment is about a third if you size it correctly, but it depends on what you size it for and what your peak demand is. So it's a really good idea to get a look at your usage profile. You can, If you have a single um, phase connection, you can buy a little clamp on meter and you can look at what your electricity profile is and then size to meet that demand is the best way to kind of consider what the correct sizing is. We don't recommend sizing for export purposes because you're losing about half the value of the electricity when you start exporting it. So it's match your demand as best you can and then seeing what that looks like versus what a solar curve would look like for your system. There are some very affordable devices there, I know, for measuring uh, energy usage. So uh, definitely something worth looking at. And look, as you said, Ruth, lots of resources there on the SEAI website and calculators to help people make those decisions. I have a feeling this isn't going to be the last time we, we, we're discussing uh, energy on, on the Signpost webinar. And um, look, Dini, once again, I want to say congratulations to you and all of your uh, fellow dairy farmers and, and of course, the Dingle Hub there for uh, getting this project. And I know you're involved in many other projects as well. So uh, we do look forward to hearing uh, and getting updates from, from those. And Ruth, thanks for, for joining us and giving us an update on the, the SEC uh, landscape across the country. And uh, there is a dedicated section on the SEII website uh, if people energy. want to find out more. Uh, so do do visit that. Uh, and Barry, thank you for helping with the questions. Um, and uh, uh, we do apologize for the, the sound uh, qual issues there with Dinny. Maybe the, the winds are might be blowing a bit harder down there today. Um, but uh, look, I, I'm going to wrap up and just to remind you that next week's uh, uh, webinar, we're going to have John Muldowney uh, from the Department of Agriculture, who is going to speak about the new acre scheme. Um, so this is a really uh, important scheme for uh, agri-environment and uh, will be a major part of the CAP, uh, the Common Agricultural Policy for the next five years. So uh, I think uh, definitely worth tuning in to, to hear what John has to say about the new scheme. Um, and I just finally want to say thank you to Yvonne Maher for helping us on the technical side today and also Andy Boland, who is our series producer. A lot of work goes in behind the scenes to uh, organize these talks and uh, I think it's uh, it's important that we acknowledge the effort that goes in there so until then we hope uh, you have a, a nice weekend and we'll we'll hope to see you all again Dinny we might be down to you and Kerry to to see all the good work you're, you're doing down there so god bless everyone and we'll see you see you again
You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.